Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for being people that you want in your presence. You desire relationship with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word that never changes. A bastion in a world that changes all the time. So I pray that you open our hearts up to your word even as we open your word up to us and I pray that you fill us with your spirit. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in Daniel chapter 2. He had a dream of a, a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, and its chest and its arms were, were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet, partly of iron, partly of baked clay. started out majestic, but it, it ended badly. And in his dream, this, this rock was cut out, but not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold, all the cheap things and all the beautiful things were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, and the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. And he was told, yeah, that's, that's like Babylon. So we're told, probably in response to this, in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image all of gold. You say only the top of his gold. No, it's all gold, top to bottom, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and he's not compensating for anything. 90 foot tall, solid gold. Set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he summoned the satraps and prefects and governors and advisors and treasurers and judges and magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps and prefects and governors and advisors and treasurers and judges and magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that the king had set up and they stood before it. He just said that. He literally just said that in verse 2 and then in verse 3 says all the same stuff because Daniel was paid by the word <laughs> or because the repetition means something. I demand that all of these people come and do this. And the next verse says, and all of those people came and did this. That repetition says, hey, when you hear this, you're reminded that what the divine king says, that's, that's what happens, right? And then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Because, again, paid by the word? Or is this another one? Of, this is what we're telling you. When you hear all of this, you must do this. And so when they heard all of this, they did that. Because when the divine king speaks, well, that's what happens. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You've issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. Do you remember that? And when the divine king speaks, that's what happens, yes? Do you remember when you said that? Yes, okay, well, and whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. Yes, yes, yes. That was like three verses ago, so yes. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs in the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship that image of gold that you've set up. So what you going to do? Furious with rage. I love that. Literally, burning with rage. King's on fire. Remember that for later, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes of all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good, because what the divine king says, that's what's supposed to happen. It's repetition. You heard this, right? Maybe you didn't hear this right. Did you hear this? But if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God is going to be able to save you, rescue you from my hand, my divine hand? But God can save you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I'm not going to even try to issue a defense. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we do serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king, even the hand that you seem to think is divine. But, and here's my favorite part of the whole story. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, and this is crucial that you understand this, even if he does not, we want you to know that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. I have no intention of defending myself. In fact, I'm going to proclaim we have absolutely no intention of doing what you've told us to do. We want you to know that, whether he saves us or not. More repetition, but this time about what's not going to happen. Oh, we hear you. We never had any intention of doing that. And that's the end of the story. And I think it's a powerful way to end the story. Isn't it? Yes, because who cares what happens next? They didn't. Why should you? Who cares? The question isn't ultimately whether God saved them or let them burn. The question is whether or not these guys surrendered their faith and they didn't. To them, anything that happens next is incidental. It doesn't matter to them. If he lets us burn, fine. We still did the right thing. To them... They'd sure love God to save them. Oh, we, we believe that he is able to save us. Absolutely. But whether or not he did is incidental. The fact is they knew he was able to. They knew God could answer prayer. He's able to answer prayer. And they were thankful for that, that we know what he is able to do. And we thank God for that. Whether or not he ever answered this prayer the way that we want is incidental. And if we read this story and say, and they were shown to be valid because 
we have spat upon their willingness to step into the furnace. We have disregarded what was important to them and to the text. If all we say is, and they were shown to be valid, their faith was shown to be, it was valid that they had fried. Because God is good, and his love endures forever, and he is righteous, perfectly correctly right, and his wonders are beyond our fathoming. He is a faithful God, no matter how he answers your prayer. And you can give thanks that he does answer prayer. You can give thanks that he is able to. And because our God is a brilliant and ultimate multitasker, the story actually does continue, and it actually does matter that it happens, but not to them, and not to the story. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The guys tying them and taking them died, and these guys fell in. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here, because nobody can go in and get you. We can't, this is as close as anybody can get. The last guys that got any closer than I am right now died. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors, remember, who, remember those guys? Had we mentioned those before? Because they're all there to bear witness to this, right? Because whatever the divine king says, that's what happens. All these guys crowded around them. Because what the truly divine king says, that's what happened. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes weren't even scorched. There wasn't even the smell of fire. A week ago, I went to an outdoor party, and I still smell like the smoke from that fire. They didn't, walking out of this. And Nebuchadnezzar said, and here's why they didn't burn. This is why. Why is it that God saved them? Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, they defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree, as the king of Babylon, I decree that the people of any nation or language that we've already been talking about here, who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut to pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. I submit to you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't survive the blazing furnace simply so that God could answer their prayer. He was going to answer their prayer one way or another. They prayed that they may stay alive? Great. That's not why. Why? So that God could be praised as king by the king a king who had lived only to praise himself and so that the whole world could hear and believe that this God is God. There is no other God like this God. The story isn't really about God answering their prayer. 
but it's about them praising God for being a God who is able to answer prayer, who is able to do anything, whether he does it here or there or not at all in this instance, it's irrelevant. The miracle is incidental. The miracle, like all of God's miracles in Scripture, is not for the miracle's sake, but to spotlight God and his wonders. God didn't bring Lazarus back from the dead because he didn't want Lazarus dead. Lazarus was dead twice. If the miracle was to keep Lazarus alive, it failed because Lazarus died twice. The miracle is to draw our attention to the Lord. And it's an important distinction. I think it's a crucially important distinction because people are so often drawn to the miracles in miracle stories. We're drawn to the spectacle of the spectacle. And we forget to be amazed by God and that all the miracles were supposed to draw our attention to God. I get it. I get why the bold black heading in your Bible is, you know, this miracle, that miracle. And let's focus on that. And the people of Jericho were like, oh, we heard about that miracle at the Red Sea. Oh, it's all the spectacular. And I get it. And it's supposed to be spectacular, but it's all supposed to be drawing us to God, not to the miracle itself. Which means that technically every miracle is incidental. Important in that it shows us God and his wonders. But it's just there to do that. I want to be amazed at the truth that my God, a God of wonders, a God who created galaxies, listened to me, to you. He's listening for your voice. The God who sculpted every vein on every blade of grass and who threw the stars up into the sky listens to you. He says, I know you. I called you by name. I created you to walk in the cool of the afternoon of the garden with me. Chatting. Because I love you. what I want to be reminded of. David sang in Psalm 139, Oh Yahweh, you, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Yahweh. God promises his people in Isaiah 65, Before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear them. In 1 Peter 3, Peter wrote, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. Is that the way you see him? An amazing number of us will see him as, well, he's at the switchboard, and I guess I have to connect with him, and he has to answer the phone, and I have to, I, I don't want to bother him. Or do you read scripture and say, God is saying, I'm always listening. I'm listening when you haven't even started talking yet. I know every thought in your mind before you say it. Before you articulate your need, I'm already answering it. And it's a legit question, because sitting here in the pew, you might say, yes, I genuinely believe that my God is seeking me out, that my God is always listening. But when you close your eyes to pray on a Thursday afternoon, is that the way you see God? Because sometimes, maybe not with you, but maybe some sometimes, 
it almost feels like in point of practice, maybe you've got to kind of convince God to help you. Or maybe even convince God to listen to you. An amazing number of prayers that I've heard take the form not just of a request, but an expressed argument. Well, X needs to happen by Y date. So, boy, God, if you could help me out with that, that would be really good. I'm sorry, who are you trying to convince? Did God need to know your timetable? Not that it's wrong to share, but why did you share it? Or people feel like they need to phrase it or present their prayers just, just right in order to be really heard by God. I, like I've heard people say, does anybody know a prayer for... Like there's a specific incantation for that, right? Oh, do you know that in the Latin? God really likes Latin. Okay, I love Latin. That's not the point. Point is, can't you just chat with God? I'm not saying that eloquence is bad. I respect eloquence. And even when I'm expressing love, if I'm writing something on my Valentine's Day card to Wendy, I may be slightly more eloquent than I am other times. Eloquence is fine. But if any time I want to talk to my wife, I say, Wife, whom I married in June of... (laughs) Mother of my children... As we approach the time for dinner, and as it's your turn to cook, and as you know I really hate mushrooms, and yet we have not had pizza for quite some time, and I have been asking for it for quite some time, and as you might recall, you promised that soon we would have pizza. (laughs) I trust your judgment as to what we have for dinner. And if it's your will that we have pizza, then let me find joy. Is that the way you talk to your spouse? Is that the way you talk to your God? Sometimes. Just talk with him. Talk with him. You were created to talk with them, to spend time with them. It seems almost entirely what the people do in Scripture. It's just talk with God when they're praying. Just talk with Him. Engage with Him. And realize that God answers. He promises to answer. Now, sometimes that answer is going to be no. Sometimes it's absolutely. Sometimes it's, wait a minute. The answer will be coming, trust me. Sometimes, oh, the answer's already there. You just haven't seen it yet. I'm already on this. It's in process. Sometimes, yes, and it's not going to look anything like what you're expecting. Seriously? Oh, yeah. Trust me. It's not what you're picturing. Isn't that the incarnation? Was that an answer to prayer? An amazing number of people are like, but that's that's not what we thought the Messiah was going to be like. And you go, I know. It's everything I told you, but nothing what you were picturing. I'm not sure where your disconnect was, but this is what I was planning all along. And in fact, I had it all planned from the beginning, because we've talked about this, right? So 
scientists talk about there being an actual eclipse that actually was at an actual date where actually Jesus probably was actually crucified. And that it fits with a cosmological model of how the universe worked. It was a natural eclipse. Which means that God set it up in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. The answer to your prayer was already in process before you existed as a species. So trust God that he knows what he's doing. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. It may not be what you're expecting or the time frame you're expecting. Okay. But if you remember that verse at all, you you tend to look at it with a sigh and a shrug and go, whatever. I guess I have to be resigned to the fact that God must know what he's doing. But you remember what happens next, the very next verse? Why God is not slow in keeping his promise? Why he might wait? He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yes, he's going to keep his promises, but he might not do it in your timetable because he's too busy loving all those people that still hate him. This is what you want. Okay. Sometimes God's plan is to withhold his promises, his answers, his wonders. But even then, the heart of it isn't petulance or dragging his feet or even being godly and doing his own timing, but to say, no, if I were to do what you want me to do right now the way you want me to do it, then I wouldn't be able to minister to her the way she needs to be. The heart of it is that I may not give you everything you want right now because doing that might undermine saving everyone. And God might seem slow, even uncaring, because he's universally caring, which can seem on the surface as being individually uncaring. I didn't get the Maserati I was asking for. But it is caring for all of us. It's like when my kid says, can I have a store-bought cookie right before dinner? And I say, no, but we have a homemade awesome cake that we're all going to have afterwards. Kid goes, but I want the cookie. And you go, I understand that. But I'm not going to give you what you want, because I've got something so much better for everyone. Why do you hate me? We call that an ill-behaved child. Even a foolish one. Because they don't appreciate that the parent has the wisdom to say, no. I'm reminded of my mother and my grandfather. In February of 1950, my 40-year-old my grandfather who was a carpenter, fell off the roof um, from the second floor of the house he was working on onto a frozen pile of bricks. And he broke his leg, and he broke his arm, he broke several ribs, broke several vertebrae, pierced his lung and several other organs. He was alone on the work site, so he got up, got into his DeSoto, drove himself to the hospital. The greatest generation, (laughs) beloved, drove himself to the hospital, and astounded the doctors by surviving for several days after that. They're literally going, I have no idea what is keeping this bag of broken bones together. My mother was nine years old, and she remembers praying for her father and for his recovery, and she also remembers thanking God because the doctors kept saying, I have absolutely no idea what's holding this man together. She's like, I do. That would be God clearly helped my father. He didn't die alone on a frozen pile of bricks. 
He helped our family so we could see him and we can love him and we can say goodbye to him and he can say goodbye to us. This isn't what I prayed for, but I praise God. This isn't what I wanted. And yet God answered prayers. She spent the last 70 years appreciative of God, even though he didn't answer her nine-year-old prayers the way she wanted him to. But she could still see God's hand everywhere in it. Even Paul, God, the Apostle Paul, who, who lived by faith, had seen with his own eyes how his prayers had saved his life over and over, even brought the dead back to life so that he could finish his sermon. Even Paul was honest about the fact that, God, that life can still be hard, right? As Mark read earlier from 2 Corinthians, he said, now, let me tell you guys in Corinth, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. It was hard. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Being faithful doesn't mean that we'll survive this life, like Enoch or Elijah, just that our faith can survive it. Life might still be hard. It still will be hard. We might have our hearts broken by life and despair about what's going to happen next in our lives. But, he says, and I love that word, wonderful, tiny, huge pivot word. He says, it was really bad. It was really hard. We despaired even of life. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Because God's wonders aren't just miraculous spectacles. Sometimes his wonders are reminding us that he works beyond our imagining, beyond what we think, beyond our ability to imagine. He's like, this this is way beyond our ability to get through. Luckily, all this happens so that we can go, it's not dependent on our ability to get through. I am not just the sum total of my fears or my strengths. I am not just the sum total of my bodily abilities, my emotional abilities. I'm not. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us, Paul says, believing in the wonders. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to, li- to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Meaning that technically, this is the whole point here, the same point that we talked about in Daniel. We believe. Even if we die, God could bring us back from the dead. If that's his will, fine. But all of this, everything we're going through, is to focus our attention on God. And when he answers these prayers, to focus our attention on God. So that other people can say, your God is the God of wonders. It's not about the spectacle. It's not about the miracle. It's about the God of wonders. It's the same point that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are making. Yeah, I believe in God. And I believe I may very well die. I know I will eventually die. And yet, I trust God. And then people will give thanks to God because they see that he's a God who hears and answers prayers. Paul says he trusts God to save him even when they're humanly despairing. Even if God doesn't save him, he can bring the dead back from life. Paul says we can put our hope in that, unwavering, absolute hope in that. Not that God will do what we're telling him to do, not that he'll do what we're asking him to do, but that he's a God who's able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And that's what I can give thanks for. 
that he's able to answer prayer. Whether he does it here in this instance or not, the miracle is not for the miracle's sake, for the sake of spotlighting the power of God. Either way, it's not about me getting items checked off my Christmas list. It's, it's God being praised as being a God who answers prayers. David saying in Psalm 37, commit your ways to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will act. He will respond. He will answer. Which is why Paul could tell us in Philippians, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. With thanksgiving, before he's seemingly done anything. With thanksgiving, because you know he'll do it, because I know he is a God who is able to do far more than I could ever ask or even imagine. He's beyond my beyonding ability to go beyond my imagination. I can trust him. To do what you want? Oh, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. So I can say thank you. Whether or not you do anything that I've asked you to do, thank you for being a God who's in the trenches with me, who's right here in the muck, and who says, I've got this. I'm like, so I'm surviving this? And God goes, I've got this. Maybe you will. But if you don't, there's a purpose to that. My Uncle Tom passed away three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. And just before he died, he shared something that blew my my cousins, my aunt, and the rest of us away. He and my aunt had never been particularly religious. She would happily tell you that she would consider herself a very liberal Christian, so liberal that they don't need to attend church, read the Bible, or pray, or ever talk about it. Um, they may go to a liberal church once a year, if that. They actually came to our church once or twice, and they were like, okay, I kind of like that. Surprised myself. I kind of liked it. When my uncle died, right before he died, he informed his family he didn't believe in God at all. Not one bit. See, when his father, my grandfather, fell onto a broken pile of bricks, my uncle prayed for my grandfather's life. And then he died. There's no God. There's no God. He's four and a half years old. Little four and a half year old Uncle Tom praying for something that didn't happen. So he spent 70 years quietly bitter. So quietly that he never told my mom, who's clearly a believer. He never told his mom, who's clearly a believer. Never told his wife, who is nominally a believer. Never told his sons, who both became believers and are both involved in, in their relationship with Christ. Never told anybody. But at the end, he wanted to make it clear he has no faith in God because he didn't answer the prayers that were the same prayers that he didn't answer for my mother, except that my mother spent 70 years seeing them as answered prayers. What's the difference? It could be that my mother was nine and he was four and a half. Could it be that one of them said, I trust you, God. Whether you do what I ask you to do or not, I trust you. And the other one said, but you didn't do what I asked. You are untrustworthy.
beloved, to the hammer, everything looks like a nail. You will usually see what you are mentally and emotionally primed to see, whether that's truth or not. So are you looking for a God who does what you want him to do? If so, stop wasting your time. That God is a weak failure and he does not deserve your worship. Don't worship him. Or are you looking for a God who hears you and always acts beyond your imagining with wisdom and power far beyond anything you could even consider asking him for? If so, then that God is sovereign and faithful and powerful and immediate. And he sculpts worlds and hears the voice of children and loves you. That God, that God is well worth every bit of your worship and so much more. Because he is God, not concierge. I can give you a hefty list of verses of times where God says, I will answer your prayers. He told Jeremiah, call on me and come to pray to me and I will hear you. John, in John, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In 2 Chronicles 7, we're told, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, I will heal their land, yada, yada, yada. I can give you a huge lit review of all these hundreds of verses showing how much God will answer prayers. And that means nothing if we don't wrap our heads around one simple truth. It's so simple. But if we don't think about it, then we twist these verses into saying, God will always do what I ask him to do. He will always give me what I ask for. And if I don't get my Maserati, I must not be doing the incantation correctly. Or you must have screwed it up for me somehow. Or maybe I do just lose faith in God. Or, 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 we twist it by thinking, I can believe this on paper, totally on paper, but I just lose my faith when I'm looking at actual giants, actual winds, and actual waves, and actual insta-face twit posts that made me feel bad. When I'm facing those things, now I don't necessarily believe that God can do everything, that nothing is impossible. All the verses in the world won't help you if you can't wrap your head around one key, simple truth. God is good, and his love endures forever. He is righteous, perfectly, correctly right, and his wonders are beyond our fathoming. That's the God we're talking to. So the fact that our God, perfectly good, eternally loving, absolutely correct, totally transcendent beyond, and yet intimately present in our relationship, the fact that our God created us to be in relationship with him, and that that God listens to us, genuinely listens for our voice, that that God promises to answer our prayers, that that God promises to answer with goodness, love, wisdom, righteousness, wonderness, not what you want, but what he knows is good and right and loving and wise. That that God, who is willing to not give you what you want, because this is what's better for everybody, connected to everybody, that that God 
no matter what happens, that God is faithful. If you can wrap your head around that, that no matter what else happens, what he decides is good and is right and is loving and is intimate and is transcendent. And I don't even mean that paradoxically. I mean that holistically. If you can appreciate that that God says, talk to me. Come, let's reason together. Come on, talk to me. And that puts everything else in context. You can read all those verses and understand, well, why didn't I get my Maserati? Maybe it wasn't good. Maybe it wasn't right. Maybe it wasn't wise for you at this time. Maybe it wasn't the best for the person around you. I don't know. Did you start with the right perspective of God? Or did you just want the Maserati? We can truly give thanks to the God who answers our prayers. And we can do that with no anxiety before we see anything. Because we trust Him. Because we start by trusting Him. Does that make sense? Because I guarantee the decisions you make about prayer and about trusting God not only affect you today, they could affect you for the next 70 years or the next 70,000. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for all that you are. Not just for what you do, but I thank you for all that you are. I thank you that you are a God who can save us from blazing furnaces. And yet you're a God who watched your son die on a cross. I thank you that you're a God who can part the waters or let us walk on the waters. And yet you were going to let Jonah drown. And yet you provided a fish. And yet we can often still find ourselves with a lack of gratitude about your provision because we forget that it's your provision based on your wisdom. And we decided we still want that vine. We still want that cool breeze. I pray, Lord, help us. Help us to see this world as your provision and to ask for your leading in it. And I pray that you help us to find gratitude and thankfulness as we look at the blessings and as we trust in your character every day. Thank you that you want to interact with us. Help us interact with you. In Jesus' name, amen.